I'm Imu Shalev, and this is A Book Like No Other. We're on episode three of mine and Rabbi Foreman's Trek Through the Garden of Eden. And coming off the cliffhanger from last time, things were feeling suspenseful. Imu, I'll tell you the truth, in my off-camera or off-mic time pondering this stuff, it's been kind of mind-bending for me. How's it been for you? I am on the edge of my seat. Just a lot of anxiety here. The source of all that anxiety? The one tree theory. That wild possibility that the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life were one and the same. Brilliant insight or absolutely bonkers? I really wasn't sure. There was a lot of good evidence for this theory. In case the last episode isn't fresh in your mind, I'll recap quickly. First, there's Deuteronomy 30, 15, which seems to almost equate the trees and the Torah, as if the trees were some kind of early Torah prototype. Now, most days that would be mind-blowing enough, because we tend to think of Torah as a text or a body of commandments. But Rabbi Foreman argued that the trees in the garden were meant to nourish us, body, soul, and the two combined. And that's a beautiful way to think of Torah. But then, Rabbi Foreman went a step further. Occam's razor, if the trees are Torah and there's one Torah, maybe there's only one tree. Maybe. No one less than Rav Yosef Kimchi seemed to think so. And this reading really helps with some textual problems. Chief among them, when the snake asks Eve which tree she can't eat from, she seems to answer, it's the tree of life. Big problem if there are two trees. Problem solved if there's one. So why am I feeling all this anxiety? Well, Enter Genesis 3.22, one little verse that seems to have the power to topple this whole theory to the ground. And that's where Rabbi Foreman and I pick up in today's discussion. The real theory killer, which we keep on talking about, is chapter 3, verse uh, 22. And the Lord God said, now mankind is like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now I have to banish him from Eden, lest he stretch forth his hand and eat from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. This verse seems to settle the question of whether there was one tree or two trees. And it seems to unambiguously tell us this theory, nice try, but obviously there were two trees. Why? Because now that mankind ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what if he eats also from the tree of life? It really sounds like there's two trees. Right, that word, gam me'etzachayim, also. Gam me'etzachayim, also, really sounds like another tree, right? And also, let's say it's one tree. If it's one tree, he already ate from that tree, right? So if he already ate from that tree, and that tree has the quality of being a tree of life... And he's already going to live forever. He's already going to live forever. Well, what's God worried about? You already ate from the tree. That's a tree of life, too. It's only one tree, so how come he's not living forever? Well, whatever reason he's not living forever by the first bite will be the reason he's not going to be forever by the second bite. So what are you so worried that he's going to take another bite of the tree? It seems like there's just no way out. There's obviously two trees here. So how is it that we deal with this verse? Rabbi Foreman had a possibility in mind. What if the problem wasn't actually in the verses themselves? but in the assumptions we were making about what it means for the two trees to be one. To see that, we had to step back and unpack what those assumptions were. What does it mean to say that both trees are one tree? This is the crucial question. 
and let me pose that question to you, Emo. What makes this tree a tree of knowledge or a tree of life? In other words, if the tree has both qualities to it, then how do you know which one it is at any given moment? Hmm. I, I just can't get away from Hashem and Elohim, right? So sort of there's the Elohim tree and the there's the Yudke Vavke tree. Okay, quick recap part two. As we said last time, Elohim represents the God of power and doing, the big CEO in the sky side of God, the side of God we access via the tree of knowledge. Yudke Vavke is the nurturing God of compassion who just wants to be with us and who we connect with via the tree of life. But this duality, it's just a matter of perspective, which lens we happen to be looking through at the time. So what I meant was that maybe the tree was like that too. And that was a reformance first thought also. Right, so that what, was immediately that? where I went to in my head at that time. Oh, okay, so I great. said, okay, I know exactly what's going on here, right? There are these two aspects of the tree and what makes it one tree or the other is whether you're thinking Elohim or whether you're thinking Yudke Vavke. If you're thinking Elohim, then you're thinking judgment, right? You're thinking good and evil. So then tree of knowledge is what it is. But if you think that there's a loving God who's the source of our life, then it's a tree of life. Now, if I would have to boil that down to one sentence, Emu, what determines at any given moment what tree it is, is your mindset. Right. So interesting. So you're saying that it's a matter of the human mindset, a matter of perspective. Yes. If I look at the tree in an Elohim sort of perspective, whatever that means, it's going to be a tree of knowledge of good and evil. But if I mock this just a little bit, if I squint a little bit and I cock my head just so, then it's a tree of life. Is that what you're saying? Yes. My first instinct was, sure, it's just a matter of mindset. To borrow an analogy from the world of science, it's a Schrodinger's cat kind of tree, right? There's the famous mm -hmm. Schrodinger's cat experiment in quantum physics. There's this paradox of light. Is, is it a particle or is it a wave, right? And at some level, the answer is it depends what you're looking for when you look at light, right? And if you're doing an experiment which requires particles to show up, then light will dutifully show up as a particle. And if you're doing an experiment that requires a wave to show up, then light will dutifully shed its particle status and will look purely like a wave. And light will become a chameleon depending on what you want it to be. So maybe the Torah is like light. And it seems like a really attractive notion. The problem is it doesn't quite jump through all the hoops in the verses. Here's why. Let's play it out. If we're right, so then when God says, Emu, I'll play God, you play man. Emu, eat from all the trees so of the he, he always does this, by the way. He never lets me be God. Uh, I always have to play You man. can play God if you want. But I don't <laughs> in this experiment if I play God. You got it. You I got say, it. Emu slash Adam, right? Eat from all the trees of the garden. They're wonderful. There's just one thing. I want you not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So now interpret my words according to this theory I've just given. What has God just told me? You want me not to perceive of the tree uh, as a tree of knowledge of good and evil when I eat from it. Yes. And how instead, by implication, should I view the tree? I'm welcome to eat of its fruit so long as I am perceiving it as a tree of life. Right. What he really means is, don't see me just as Elohim when you eat from the tree. See me more multidimensionally than that. And see the tree, therefore, as a tree of life. Don't just see it as a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? Oh, I that, think I know where you're going. It, is your point here that um, if God really wants man not to cognize him only as 
Elohim, he wants him to cognize him as Yudke Vavke. Then that means that if man ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the very first thing God should want man to do is to run back, see the tree as a tree of life, and eat from it. Not, Absolutely. Not, right? God wouldn't freak out and be like, oh, no, he's going to eat from the tree of life. Exactly. God should want that. That's the antidote. That's the antidote. In other words, if what makes the tree a tree of life is purely mindset, and if what I'm upset about is your mindset, that you've seen me the wrong way, then the antidote is I want you to see me in the right way. Or a hallway. Right. So why would I keep you away from the tree lest you fix your sin and come to a proper understanding of me? I'm with you. That feels to me like a fatal problem. It's a fatal problem for the notion that what makes it a tree of life or a tree of knowledge is mindset. It can't be mindset because then God should be happy for us to adopt the right mindset. I'm, I'm at the edge of my seat again. I don't think it's two trees. I don't think it's one tree. Okay, good. So it means that if it's going to be one tree, the only way this theory can survive is if there's another thing that determines whether it's a tree of life or a tree of knowledge Okay. other than straight mindset. Let me put it this way. It's not that the tree is a chameleon, that, that it could suddenly turn into a tree of life or a tree of knowledge what if we took a simpler way of viewing it, which is there's an aspect of the tree, which is a tree of knowledge, and there's another aspect of the tree, which is a tree of life. You're saying like physically, this physically. is what's mind bending for me here, right? So like how much of this is, is you know, spiritual heebie-jeebie metaphor and how much of this is like an orange? Right. Yeah. What if it's really simple? So Are say, you saying okay. it's like a tree, a tree with two fruits on it? Like Maybe. I was on the right track. Rabbi Foreman was suggesting that solving this problem lay in breaking the tree down into two different parts. One part that made it a tree of life, and one part that made it a tree of knowledge. But Rabbi Foreman had something a little more elegant than two fruits in mind. And it was actually his 13-year-old son who he had to thank for the insight. Okay, so here the answer came to me through actually my son, Avichai. So we were puzzling about this over Sukkot, and Avichai noticed something fascinating. And here's what he noticed. Avichai said, take a look at the moment Chava disobeys the command and eats from the tree, because that surely is the moment where the tree is being related to as a tree of knowledge of good and evil. So let's go back and take a look at the verse. Let's start from verse 2, right? The serpent has said, uh, did God really say that you're not allowed to eat from the trees of the garden? Ima, can you read that verse? Sure. Right, the, the woman says to the snake, right, so she's contradicting the snake. The snake said, I, I heard you can't eat from any of the trees. And she's like, no, no we can't. We can eat from the fruits of the, the trees in the garden. Uh, and the fruit of that tree, which is in the middle of the garden, right, God said, you can't eat uh, from it. The Lotig Ubo, and you shall not touch it, pen Timusin, right, lest you die. Yes. What do you see in those verses? Um, what do I see in those verses? Lotig Ubo is, is, um, is sticking out like a, a sore, sore thumb. thumb. God does not say you can't touch trees, but Chava is like, yeah. she's, she's clearly wrong when it comes to Lotig Ubo. That's clearly a figment of her imagination. Right. So aside from her added prohibition, that you should not touch the trees. What else strikes you in verse two and three? What Avichai noticed is that there's a discrepancy 
from the way Eve is looking at eating from this tree and the way God looks at the problem that people might eat from the tree of life. Now let's go back to that verse for a moment in three. She just told the snake, not eating from the tree, and then, Batera Isha, Kitova Itzlamachal, the Right? She saw that the tree was good to eat, etc. And she took from its fruits and she ate, and she gave to her husband also an ate. What Avichai noticed is that when eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Eve and the narrator continually focused on the fruits of the tree. Mm-hmm. She said it to the snake, right? We're allowed to eat from the fruits of all the other trees. It's just the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. Remember, she even never even talks about it as a tree of knowledge of good and evil. She just talks about it as the one tree in the middle of the garden. It's the fruits that you can't eat from it. Mm-hmm. And then when she eats, she reaches out and she takes the fruit and she eats it. And now go to the verse about the tree of life. When God banishes them from Eden. Now mankind has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Va'ata... Pen yishlach yado, lest he stretch forth his man, and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. But interestingly, when God talks about the tree of life and the fear that man will eat from it, there's no mention of fruit. The word fruit is all over the place in eating from the tree of knowledge, but nowhere in the fear of eating from the tree of life. Are you are you suggesting that that um that God's worry that, that, that not that, that they're gonna eat Oh, interesting. They're not going to eat from the fruits of the tree. They're going to eat the tree? Exactly. Why would anyone want to eat a tree? Is that like a hormonal imbalance? If that's what you were thinking, so was I. But at the same time, there was something really cool and compelling about Avichai's observation. When Eve is talking to the snake, she clearly specifies, God told us we couldn't eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. The object of that whole discussion? It's the fruit. But then, if we flip to our theory killer in 322, right before the exile, and just take God's word at face value. What he's worried about there is that man will stretch out his hand, and take also from the tree. We kept stumbling over these words because we thought also meant also from the tree of life, in addition to the tree of knowledge. But Avichai was pointing out really a much simpler and more elegant reading. It means not just the fruit, but also from the tree itself. What God is worried about is that man will also take from the tree itself, as opposed to only of the fruit. So weird as it may be for God to be afraid that they'd want to eat the tree, it does seem to be what the verse is saying. And looking at the verse, I noticed a clue that began to clarify for me what God's fear was really about. Wait, what this, take there's the, also something interesting here, which is that it's not just that it's it's lest he stretch out a hand. That that phrase doesn't seem to be necessary. The verse could have just said, now that humankind has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, now what if he takes also from the tree of life? No yishlach yado, no hand stretching necessary. Yishlach yado is um, is violence. And that that yes. word is. When else do you have yishlach yado in Genesis? Al tishlach yadcha el hanar v'al taslamuma. Oh, that's the Akeda. Yish- Genesis twenty two twelve. It's the angel saying to Abraham, 
Don't raise your hand against the boy or do anything to him. It's the ultimate violence. It's Abraham at the Akedah about to take his child, right? Later on, the Chazal will appropriate the word shlichot yad to be illegitimate violence against someone else's thing. God is worried lest man do violence to the tree itself. Yeah, because taking a fruit is not violent. That's right. Wow, this is crazy. Right. Picking a tree's fruit doesn't hurt the tree, but eating the tree, that does. That destroys it. So putting aside why Adam and Chava would want to eat the tree, what was becoming clear was how God saw that desire as an act of violence. So here is what emerges from Avichai's diuk, as it were, Avichai's inference. The fruits of the tree are the tree of knowledge of it. In other words, literally the fruits of the tree are knowledge of good and evil. But the tree itself is a tree of life. This is mind-blowing. So it's the same It's the same tree. It's the same tree. The tree, the bark, the, the essence of the tree is life. But its fruits, yes. its fruits are... are uh, a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Are good and evil. And that, that actually harmonizes beautifully with our last session, right? Because uh, yes. world one world one is a world of fruits. It's a world of products. It's a world of outcomes. It's a world yes. of results. But the actual essence of the tree, the tree itself, um, is all about source. It's all, it's all exactly. life, breathing life, giving life. And sure, it produces fruits, but it is right. the source of life. I was trying to put the pieces together. Avichai's insight helped us understand how to read 322. If there was only one tree, why was God still worried about them eating from the tree of life after they already ate from the tree of knowledge? Because one was the fruit, the other was the tree itself. But I was noticing how nicely this divide fit with Rabbi Foreman's reading of Genesis 2 from last time as well. He'd argue that the two trees nourish different parts of ourselves. As doers in the world, we long for God's practical guidance. And that's what the tree of knowledge gives us. How perfect that that's the fruit. Think about it even in English. We say things like, the fruit of my labor, or we had such a fruitful discussion. Fruit is a perfect symbol for outcomes and bottom line takeaways. But that tree of life, yudke vavke, pure soul connection, now that, very appropriately, was embodied by the tree itself. think about trees, if you read a book like The Hidden Life of Trees, they're incredibly sophisticated creatures. There's neural networks in trees that make an entire forest, some sort of, you know, huge living organism that interacts with each other, that cares for one another, can keep, keep stumps alive, but no tree has a brain. It's just mm. being. I mean, I remember having this, this visceral reaction. We were hiking through Hutter park is this gorgeous redwood forest i'm there with my son and i was just struck at how silent it was and i like turned to avichai and said like it feels like we're all alone he says we're not all alone look at all these trees right and it struck me that's true there's all these silent trees and these trees aren't alone they're in relationship with one another i'm supposed to be in relationship with them too there's a whole world of life here but it's quiet right it's silent these aren't trees that do the whole doing part of the, of life is not the the domain of a tree. A tree knows about just what does it mean to be, to experience this world, to experience my life in connection with other trees, in connection with the earth, in connection with the air. 
And for no tree is this more true than the tree of life. Remember last time through our reading of Genesis 2-7 and 2-9, Rabbi Foreman argued that the whole purpose of the tree of life in the garden was to connect us to God by being a source of God's heavenly breath. There's leaves on this tree that exude heavenly oxygen that you're meant to just embrace and take in, which is why Solomon says, it's hyenhi, not la'ochle pirio. It's not a tree of life to those who eat of its fruits. It's hyenhi lamachazikimba. It's a tree of life wow. to those who are willing to grab a hold of it. He's telling you the mode of how you access the height of the tree. That makes so much more sense, right? It makes so much more sense to sing Eitz Chaim He Le'ochle Pirio. Of course, that's what he should have said. But it's not. It, we sing Eitz Chaim He Le'machazikimba. When was the last time you hold you held a tree? Yeah. Right? It's very counterintuitive. And yet, that's the only way to interact with the tree of life. With, yes. You know, without without being violent toward it. Yeah, which is the answer to why God doesn't even have to tell you about the tree of life. All God has to say is, there's a tree in the middle of the garden, don't eat its fruits. What should I do? Just hang out in the garden. Eat all the other trees. Hang out, right? It's an impressive tree. Look at it. Breathe it. Be with the tree. Just just bask in its beauty. Just enjoy it. Just be there. Maybe sidle up to the tree one day. Hold it, right? It's there for you. That's the magic of the tree of life. This whole tree-hugging thing may seem a little speculative, but it was actually based on a very close reading of our old friend, chapter 2, verse 9. Listen to the verse. And God caused to grow from the ground every tree that was pleasing to behold and good for food. So we know that there's two ways man can relate to all these trees. They're beautiful to look at, and they're delicious to eat. And God says, From all the trees of the garden you shall surely eat. By implication, should you also look at them? Of course, you can look at them and you can eat them, right? But what the reason why I'm mentioning the eating part of it is because I'm contrasting it to the one tree, Betochagan, you shouldn't eat from. So therefore, what should you do with it? The answer is you should look at it. And that's how you relate to it. It's the tree that you just hang out with. Just behold it. Just be with it. So now we had a reading for Genesis 3.22. Adam and Chava ate the fruit, God was worried that they'd eat from the tree itself. Plus, we had a way more robust picture of how these special trees, I mean, how this special tree, provided its different forms of spiritual nutrients. Knowledge of good and evil was packed into its fruits, and that's what was off limits. The tree itself nurtured our souls, our very beings, with God's breath. All in all, the one tree theory was saved. The mystery of Eden's setting was solved. Well, it's been fun. See you later. No, I'm still here. We may have figured out the mystery, but we were far from understanding what it meant. There was still this question. Why, after eating the fruit, would Adam and Eve want to eat the tree itself? And here's another one. Why couldn't Adam and Eve hang out with the tree and eat its fruits from the get-go? The last question is a variation of one we've asked before. Why would God want to keep knowledge of good and evil from us? Now, Rabbi Foreman's already suggested that maybe God never intended for the restriction in the garden to be forever. There's even a medrash that says as much. So the question isn't really why we couldn't eat the fruit, but why did God want us to wait to eat them and just hang out with the tree first? I have to tell you, this question was genuinely eating at me. So between sessions, 
I sent Rabbi Foreman a voice message about it that sparked a conversation I want to play for you now. Unfortunately, this conversation didn't happen during a regular recording session, so the audio quality isn't the best, but I hope the content will make up for it. We're finally going to see how this shift in the setting of the garden from two trees to one has resounding implications for all the drama that happened there. And not just that, but going back to the connection between Torah and the tree, how the drama in Eden has resounding implications for how we're meant to relate to God's words. It's a rich discussion, if I do say so myself, and I'm excited for you to hear it. Um, did you get a chance to listen to the, the voice notes I left you earlier today? What, um, there were voice notes about, the, about what we're doing? Yeah. Do you mind just uh, listening to us? Sure. Hey, good morning. Um, just wanted to let you know that I've been playing with um, one of the ideas that we were talking about. The voice note goes on to describe how that Shabbos, I'd shared what we'd been learning at my table. Since no one else had Chumashim, I kept rereading the verses, especially the one about God creating all the trees, saying that verse over and over. I noticed a pattern. The first part of it describes the regular trees in two ways. Nechmad lemar'eh, v'tov lemachal, Pleasant to behold and good for food. While the second part of the verse also gives us a pair. The two special trees. Tree of life and tree of knowledge. So it's two sets of two, one after the other. And they seem to parallel each other. Rabbi Foreman had already made a connection between Nechmad lemar'eh and the tree of life. Just beholding is a very tree-of-life way of relating. But that connection holds true for tov l'ma'achal and the tree of knowledge, too. For one, tov l'ma'achal, good to eat, shows up in the second part of the verse explicitly in terms of language. It's an eitz hadas tov vara, a tree of knowledge of good and evil. But also conceptually, good to eat captures such a tree of knowledge approach when you're asking what's the utility or value of whatever you're assessing. It was like these descriptors were instructing us how to embody the trees. Seeing it this way, Rabbi Foreman's insight that we're meant to relate to the tree of life first before eating its fruit became even more significant to me. It's not intuitive that relating to the tree of life should come before relating to the tree of knowledge, but that beholding should come before eating, something about that did ring true. You can't really behold something after you've eaten it. And once you begin to think of something in a utilitarian sort of way, where you try and assess its value, you can't really go back to appreciating it on its own terms. So that path of appreciating something before using it, of tree of life before tree of knowledge, it started to make more sense to me. But that's not the only thing I noticed that Shabbos. Listen to how Eve describes the tree when she's talking to the snake. It's filled with language parallels from the verse describing the trees. The woman saw that the tree was good for eating and a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable, nechmad, as a source of wisdom. It's a very similar list to the first verse, right? Except that Eve, she switches the order. The first thing she says is that the tree is tov l'ma'achal, that it's good for eating. And I couldn't help wonder if that switch was somehow a catalyst for what happened next. You know, actually eating the forbidden fruit. I was really curious to hear what Rabbi Foreman had to say about all this. Maybe Eve's switch was just a coincidence, a negligible difference. But on a personal level, 
it made me think of so many different situations, times my kids are upset or I'm struggling with a colleague at Aleph Beta, and at times my first impulse is to take a tree of knowledge approach, to assess the situation, what's the best outcome here, and then jump into action to get to that. But when I choose Nechmad Limare to take a tree of life approach first, meaning just to listen and appreciate the other person, make no judgments, it inevitably leads to richer connections. So anyways, it really does seem like a key to living a good life is can you approach Nechmad Limare and then tell the Ma'achal. Okay, I'll stop here. But mostly what I communicate is that um, it's, it's mattered to me a great deal and it's very moving. Hey, Emu. Hey. Um, yeah, I, I agree. One of the ways I would put it is that essence always has to come before fruits, right? Mm. Fruits themselves are the product of the trunk, right? The trunk needs to be related to before you can relate to the fruit. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So some level, that's what it is. Or to put it another way, there's something unapproachable about God or about this tree that requires me to hold back, that I can't have it for a while. So to me, what, what happens is that when you take Yira and you combine it together with Ava, right, then you get something really mind-blowing. Here's what I heard Rabbi Foreman saying. In our relationship with God, as in all relationships, some restraint is a good thing. It forces you to behold first before tasting, as it were meaning before you benefit in a more self-serving way from the relationship. And ultimately, this restraint enriches the tasting. But Rabbi Foreman was actually saying something a little more than this, because the way I just described it, that still has a utilitarian bent to it. Wait now, and the experience will be more enjoyable later. For Rabbi Foreman, beholding before eating wasn't just about the joys of delayed gratification. It was a value in and of itself, a way of honoring the other person, regardless of what you ended up getting from them. The fact that I am beholding without tasting, why am I doing that? I'm not doing that just to enhance my own, to my own pleasure. It does enhance sort of, it's, 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 it's sort of beholding its integrity to some extent. It's yes. no longer in right. service why of am you. I doing that? Because I respect the thing and therefore respect demands that I appreciate it in and of itself before taking from it, right? Now, why do I respect it? I respect it because of power, because it has because it's, de because it's deserving. It's deserving of respect, and exactly. that you're calling power. Yes, you're respecting the power of the thing. Mm -hmm. You're respecting its demand on you that mm -hmm. you just behold it. I'm not just a thing that can be taken at will and even united in love with you. So it's, it's, it's very interesting. Like you have. Orla, right? You plant a new tree, oh, you, you, you can't eat. You have to respect, then yeah. you can eat. When you have an animal, you can't just eat. You have to slaughter, pour the blood on the earth, return, right? Uh, and then you can eat. Right. So what's happening, ironically, is that there's lots of different values here. And unless you play it in slow motion, you don't get to see them all unfold, right? In other words, I, I might start by saying, well, you know, I'm a tree of knowledge kind of guy. I'm just interested in tachlis. I want to know the difference between good and evil because I want to do I want to do in the world, right? Okay. So then we say, well, one second, hold on. There's something else. There's a tree. It's a smell. You have to love the Torah. It's not Torah is not just something that practically helps you do. You have to fall in love with the Torah first. So you say, okay, you're right. 
sorry, 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 sorry. It's, it's really fa- what you're saying is so profound. It's so good. Yeah, it's, it's so not good. Yeah, it's not love. I would be in love with the Torah, right? But what I don't understand is that my holding back on the doing and my willingness to love the Torah in a non-conceptive way actually brings another value, a third value into it, which even as before love, which is respect. Mm-hmm. I've respected you enough not to just go for your fruits, right? Mm-hmm. Not to see you as a thing, a commodity, right? But now I've I've respected you. So now when I join with you in love, the love itself is more powerful, right? It's this merger of love-respect. Now, once I love-respect you enough, now I can have your fruits. And that's a whole different thing. Really profound. Because I, I do think like the way I was raised and the way I think religion is often taught is actually run to do mitzvahs. Right? Run to do mitzvahs. It's good. Just do, do, do. Yep. But if you ever if you ever stopped me to say like do you really love god it just it's just a whole other lens right to me the, the energy of doing and focusing on outcomes is a very different energy than withholding and respecting respect is the beginning of a demand to behold first behold behold then love right and once you get your beingness correct that beholding and respectful loving then you can bring in the doing of mitzvahs. but before that it's it's toxic which is why the tree of knowledge alone is toxic. Hmm, crazy. Rabbi Foreman was adding such a layer of nuance to my observations about Nechmad Lamaren, Tov Lamachal. Why did God want us to hang out with the tree of life first before eating its fruits? The simple answer is building a loving relationship always has to come before just benefiting from what someone else has to offer you. But Rabbi Foreman was answering an even deeper question than that. I think implicitly, He knew that if love was all the first step was about, God wouldn't have had the tree of knowledge there in the garden at all. Why tempt us? He'd have just made a 100% tree of life paradise and we'd have developed all the love in the world for him. So there has to be a reason why the tree of knowledge was there and we knowingly had to behold it and wait to eat from it. And that reason, Rabbi Foreman was saying, is that's how you develop respect in addition to love, which is the real foundation of a solid relationship the kind of relationship God wanted to build with us in the garden. Beautiful, right? But there was another layer of nuance to this argument that I found fascinating as well. It doesn't take a genius to know you shouldn't use someone without caring for them. But the temptation of tov lem achal is much more subtle than that. When we're in utilitarian mode, tree of knowledge mode, we aren't necessarily just out for ourselves. We could be taking action for noble reasons. But even then, These actions are hollow without a strong personal connection grounding them. Even more than hollow, Rabbi Foreman had called the tree of knowledge toxic on its own, which are strong words. But I think what Rabbi Foreman meant by them will become clear if we jump back into the conversation. Having laid out how our relationship with the tree was supposed to develop, Rabbi Foreman now turned to what went wrong. I also think it pays to tease out what happens, how things go wrong when you don't Mm -hmm. have those first two stages. I think the snake's temptation is already several things down the road, right? Snake's temptation, don't even be like God having been evil. That's like a very blatant power grab. But let's even go before that. Let's say my real sin is that I'm passing over the tree of life, right? And I'm going straight for doing so let's say I'm Chava and I, and I have a Lishma thing, right? I say like, no, no, there's this 
wonderful tree in the world, and it's God's words, and God's words are meant to guide me in my life. So I'd sure love to know what God thinks about good and evil, right? And that's my first mistake. I want to know what God thinks about good and evil so I can live my life before I appreciate the magic of the fact that God is even just talking to me. Yeah, that to me already feels tragic because it's so outcome oriented. Right. Like what you want from me, my fruits. Also, also really interesting about it is that notice that the other trees are nechmad lamara, right? And with this tree, it's ta'ava le'inayim. Rabbi Foreman is referring back to Eve's description of the tree right before she eats the fruit. The woman saw that the tree was good for eating and a desire for the eyes. Eve switches the order of descriptors, but Rabbi Foreman was noticing another difference. Eve and the earlier verse both called the tree tov l'ma'achau, good to eat. But in chapter 2, the trees are called nechmad l'ma'ah, pleasant to behold, and Eve calls them ta'ava le'enayim, desirable for the eyes. Similar concepts, but they're not a perfect match. So it's interesting, you have to ask yourself, how did it become ta'ava le'enayim, just not nechmad l'ma'ah? That makes a lot of sense to me. So the, the eights is tovlam acha, which is inappropriate. That's supposed to come later. And then the enaim now get involved. The enaim, oh great, enaim are here? That's the beholding one. Maybe they'll get us back on track. But no, now the enaim can no longer even behold in a nechmad kind of way. So tov becomes ta'ava. Phonologically, tov almost plays off ta'ava. How oh, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, a t- it's a total corruption, right? Tov is theoretically a word that means good, although here it's meaning it's utilitarian. Um, and then ta'ava is this almost this lie you tell yourself. Lusting after it with my eyes. Yeah, I'll be satiated if I get this. Right, um, and lusting after it is, yeah, that is, that is yeah, it's interesting. You start with Chava and you say, okay, Chava, why do you want that tree? And she says, well, I really want to know God's value system. Why? what would really be useful for me in my life to be able to make decisions, to have this, you know, objective value system of good and evil, and then to be able to make those godly decisions with, right? That's why I think those words are very helpful to me. They give me this utility. But if I'm doing that without loving God, I'm just consuming what God has to give me in this trade. So then what happens is in the absence of love, really all I'm left with is, the utility, and once I start realizing how big that utility is, I realize how powerful this thing that the tree gives me is. So it's like, wow, I'm really much better off having these concepts of good and evil. That's a really powerful thing to have. So when you marry love and fear together, so that becomes a loving awe, right? But when you separate them, so it's just straight out, fear and admiration of power, right? Which, but nothing really more than that. That's when the snake comes in and the snake says, oh, but you know what? God doesn't really want you to have that tree. Oh, so is God keeping that power to himself? Rabbi Foreman was describing a really dark, slippery slope from desire for knowledge of good and evil to becoming power hungry. But I think it's a really wise insight. Pursuing anything with 
cold-hearted singularity becomes a kind of power grab. And being so obsessed with power leaves you vulnerable to being manipulated by someone like the snake, who will try to convince you everyone, even God, is just out for power themselves. By the way, Rabbi Foreman has some support for this idea about the snake that he didn't happen to mention in this conversation. Remember in creation story number two, God is always yud ke vav ke elohim? The one exception is when the snake talks to Eve. He says, af ki amar elohim? Did elohim really say you can eat from all the trees of the garden? Just elohim, no yud ke vav ke. It's like the snake saying, don't be fooled. God is only Elohim. And this whole exercise with not eating the fruit, that's just so he can keep all this power for himself. That's the deep lie that the snake tells. And it sends Eve into a tailspin, which I'll let Rabbi Foreman continue to describe. Well, what I admire about God is his incredible power. And I am teaching myself to be powerful in that way, it's a very short step to say a very powerful person who admires power, wouldn't God admire me even more if I was hyper-competitive for that power, if I wanted a little bit more of it, right? And before you know it, I want to be the one who makes these distinctions. I want to be the ultimate sayer of good and evil. I want to displace God and be the owner of the tree, right? It's kind of why power corrupts. It doesn't start corrupting you. It starts with just like I'm admiring God and God is powerful. And that's true. But unless you tell yourself the whole truth, you'll be corrupted by that. Hmm. Really interesting. Uh, do, you, do you think that's why she does this thing that uh, dust don't understand her motivation for, right? Why does she turn around and give it to Adam? And I always thought that it was shame that she actually felt like I'm, I'm going down and bringing down someone else with me. Um, but you seem to paint an Eve that is really interested in knowing good and evil because she thinks that's the right thing to do. Um, and the very first thing she does is actually pronounce good and evil. She actually undoes a, the only good and evil decree that there ever was, right? Don't eat from this. She's like, oh, I can de decide this is actually good to eat. And so she commands man almost. Right. Like if I was Eve, I would say, wow, I feel newly empowered in a good spiritual way. I know, I, I understand God's values from the inside. I understand these new concepts of good and evil. And God has opinions, all this stuff. And I feel hooked into some of his opinions. And it's amazing. Right. And then I see Adam ambling along. And I think like, eh, I'm supposed to be his mate. He's a yokel. Right? He's naive. He's all lovey-dovey. Right. He has no sense of, of what we could achieve, what we could do, of this, this incredible power that I have. I'm supposed to love him. I want him to be like me, right? So I hand him the fruit. But in essence, even though there's, there's some love in what she's doing, kind of, because she wants to love an equal. But the problem is, is that what she was meant to do. She is Nechmad She's supposed to appreciate his integrity. What she was supposed to do was she was supposed to be another human being who could do what only humans could do with, with Adam and love him for his humanity and have them both be humans in relationship with God. So and she instead, was, she, she gave him a list of his flaws. Right. So instead, that gives him a list of his flaws. And she says, you know, I think I'd respect you a little bit more if you were more than human. 
if you had these, if you had these incredible godly powers, which God doesn't quite want us to have yet, but look how amazing they are, right? So I'm actually shooting Azer Konegdo in the foot. Because the whole idea of Azer Konegdo is what real love is, is to love the humanity in your significant other. And she's actually loving him for, for a rejection of humanity and wanting to be something more than that. I think that's profound already. It's actually one of the hardest things to do in a marriage is It's actually stop trying to change the other person. Yes, right. To be only human and to be able to love someone who's only human. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Nice. Anyway, so those were good points about Nachmad Lamara. I think it's beautiful seeing so much in Nachmad Lamara coming before Tobla Machal in her subtle inversion of Tobla Machal and then seeing it as we've done that Tobla Machal then corrupts Nechmad Lamara to make it into Ta'va Le'naim, which is more of a self-serving thing, right, is what happens when you really take love out of the picture and don't relate to the tree as it is. In episode one, I told Rabbi Foreman he'd taken the story of Gan Eden from me. After this conversation, I felt he'd given it back, a richer, fuller version of it. I had a sense of God's original plan for the tree and for us but also how that plan tragically got derailed. But there was still that one question I keep mentioning that we hadn't answered. I could understand why someone might want to eat the fruit, but why in the world would they want to eat the tree itself? Absurd as this may sound, Rabbi Foreman saw it as the natural outgrowth of everything we'd been saying. Okay, now, Imu, what if I was someone who was obsessed with the fruits? I was obsessed with what I could get from the tree. So now let's play this little game. What do I get from the tree? So I start with knowledge of good and evil. Okay, that's great. But if I don't think God loves me, if I don't care about connecting to God, all I care about is his rules, there's something hollow at the heart of my relationship with God. I'm not willing to worship him because I love him. I'm only willing to worship him because he's got these rules and I'm enamored with these rules. And if I'm the knower of all these rules and other people don't know the rules, I can actually start telling them what to do. And, and I'm the one who's looked at and I'm the one who's admired because I know what to do. And how do you feel, Emu, when everybody admires you? Because you're the one who knows what to do. Powerful. That's a bit of a power trip. And you like that power. A powerful person, one who admired only the powerful side of God, might be tempted to think, well, maybe I should have a little bit more of that power, might become power-obsessed, right? You'd want to eat all the fruit, have all the knowledge, but then you might want even more power than that. And then, because you hang around the tree, you begin to intuit that the tree had another power too, and it wasn't in the fruits. It was in the trunk. It was in the tree itself. And the power was immortality itself. If I could only consume not just the fruits, but take in the same way I took in the fruit, the tree itself, then I could be immortal, just like the tree is immortal. Doesn't you sound die. like a, uh, a Silicon Valley tech guy, right? Originally, they get into it uh, to, to try and make the world a better place. And then the tech investor or the tech uh, entrepreneur gets more and more powerful. People give them more and more resources uh, to back their next ventures and build their 
By the way, I'm, I'm a capitalist. I, I think capitalism is wonderful. But uh, there is this thing that happens when you become more and more powerful and you solve more and more problems that some of the Silicon Valley elite starts thinking about the last great horizon. Uh, and it, it's sort of spoken, uh, hushed at parties in Silicon Valley, but how do we cheat death? How do we uh, get our, right, yes. upload our uh, minds into a cloud the problem, the tragedy is, is that God doesn't want you to look at the tree of life that way. It is true that it's a tree of life because it's an expression of God, the source of all life. But God's not interested in you eating from the tree and actually becoming immortal. That's not the point of the tree of life. The point is while you're alive, you should breathe in from the tree. You should have a taste of eternity while you live in this world, right? You should enrich your life by connection with God, the source of all life. But if somebody wasn't interested in love and they were only interested in power, they wouldn't relate to the tree of life that way. They wouldn't relate to it by breathing it in. And the tragedy is they would begin to destroy the tree in an effort to take the last gift that the tree has to give. And therefore, God has to protect the tree. And that's why he banishes us from Eden. We think he banishes us from Eden because he can't stand us living mm. forever. I think he's trying to preserve the integrity of the tree. Later, there will be a time for this tree. I have to keep this integrity of the tree, that there'll be something to give later. How do you measure a life? Is it quality or quantity? The tree of life was supposed to enhance Adam and Chava's quality of life. But what if they just cared about quantity? They might consume the tree to steal its most essential power and lose the real gift it could give them. And so they had to go. With that, the story of the garden truly felt like it had fallen into place. But as I sat back, something Rabbi Foreman had just said piqued my interest. Later, there will be a time for this tree. I have to keep this integrity of the tree that there'll be something to give later. Later when? We get kicked out of the garden, game over. We never see the tree again. Or so I thought. But what I want to explore with you next time is the possibility that this isn't the last time we've seen the tree of life. And I don't mean metaphorically. That's not seeing the tree of life. Seeing the tree of life is actually beholding this vision. It reappears, the story of the tree of life isn't over. And once we begin to understand that the two trees are really one, it opens up to us not just the story of the Garden of Eden in a new way, but the rest of the Torah in a new way, too. I'm super excited. I can't wait. Okay, okay. We'll see you then. After this session, I turned my Tanakh inside out looking for the return of the tree. But I got nothing. Give it a try. See what you find. The one thing I kept coming back to was the connection between the tree and the Torah. If the tree was a precursor to the Torah, as a Reformant had been arguing, then was Revelation the return of the tree? I knew that alone couldn't be what Rabbi Foreman meant. He said the tree itself was coming back. That meant trunk, leaves, fruit, the works. But I felt like getting the Torah, tree 2.0, had to be part of the story, somehow. And that made me wonder. I thought I knew what happened at Revelation. But then again, go back a few weeks, and I thought I knew what had happened in the garden. Next time on A Book Like No Other, the tree returns. It really does. And yes, it changes the whole story. Again. 
This time, the story of our beloved book, this incredible book like no other. But don't go yet, because there is a mini epilogue to this episode waiting in your podcast feed. Rabbi Foreman and I explore some amazing implications of the idea that the tree of life was meant to extend quality, not quantity of life. Subscribe to A Book Like No Other to get notified when all new episodes are up. And if you're enjoying this journey so far, please rate this podcast, write a review, and share it with others. A Book Like No Other is a product of Aleph Beta, a nonprofit media company dedicated to helping people fall in love with Torah. If you like what you're listening to, I'm going to ask you if you can please consider joining the ranks of our paid members at alephbeta.org. Aleph Beta is a little bit of a weird nonprofit. We're almost entirely crowdfunded by people like you. So I just want to make this plea that if this Torah meant something to you, it's up to individuals like you who actually vote with their contributions with their small donations to say, hey, I believe in this. I like what you're doing. Your contributions go towards teaching and spreading high-quality Torah to as many people as we possibly can. If that mission matters to you, and if you want to support it, it means the world to us. Thank you for partnering with us and enabling us to do this really meaningful work. This episode was recorded by Rabbi David Foreman and me, Imu Shalev. It was edited by Tikva Hecht with additional edits by Evan Wiener. Audio editing was done by Hilary Gutman. A book like no other's senior editor is Tikva Hecht. Adina Blausin keeps all the parts moving. Hey, that was amazing. That was crazy. I didn't think you were able to tie it up like that. <laughs> but uh, this is really compelling. Really compelling. The pen, what's it called? The... Uh, Kava touching the tree now makes sense, yeah. right? You're actually not allowed to touch it, possibly, if you're no, approaching. Well, well, first of all, it could be that she exaggerated with Lotugubo, right? It could be that that would be an embrace and that would be okay. And tragically, she was like, no, we can't even touch it. I'm not sure. Maybe it's Lotugubo, but Gubo is, right? It's just, it's a, just watch it. Yeah, you're supposed to. You're really supposed to. Um, just watch. Tigubo may not. We may not need to take it literally, right? Especially in the don't eat from it. And don't don't um, don't invade it. Don't, yeah, right, don't, don't invade. Don't yeah. right. Don't, no, tigubo would be don't take of its part. Don't just be so enamored that you start taking things from it. It has to just be there. Right, right. and so it actually kind of kind of does work. Cool. Yeah. It's very cool. All right. Very farewell. Cool. Uh, okay. I'm excited for the next session. Okay. See ya. See ya.